1: Hello, my friend Sarah. Hello, Louise. How are you?
0: I'm good. It's <laughs> been a well, week. How it's are you? A,
1: I'm good. I saw a funny scream truck post come up with our old truck today, and I have to send you a picture
0: of it. it oh, it's like laugh. a memory in a memory <laughs> thing. Oh, a gotcha. It's like what? Someone has a scream truck? <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> they they might
0: actually easily could easily could. Well,
1: here we are for our new adventure, which we love, our podcast, Megan Colhang Galbraith, The Guild of the Infant Savior. We're reviewing pages 117 to 140 today for those reading along with us. And just right away again, the writing is rich, rich, rich.
0: Yes. And early, she kind of gets into her her adoptive parents. I like this line. I was ruthlessly loved. That (laughs) was a... Yeah.
1: Yeah, her adopted parents got the memo. Come to get this baby. They weren't ready, mm-hmm. and I did like that. Her adopted mom put together a book. You know, put that like tried to put which down the, things. The yeah,
0: subtitle of this book: an adopted child's memory book. Which mm-hmm. I guess they must have made those. Yeah, then which I find interesting. You know, it's the narrative is oh, the adopted. You know, we love you just as much as our own, but there's always the. Distinction, an adopted child. Adopted, an adopted child.
1: child. They were really excited to see her because she was plump with the big, big eyes and quizzical face and, and not. Right. A skinny they were expecting baby. a skinny
0: baby. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a malnutrition baby, which, you know, it's kind of her, the way she writes it to it is, it's very satirical almost, you know. Mm-hmm. It's neat. Yeah. So that part, I feel like she got into a lot about her parents and, who they were. I mean, I was really fascinated with her mom, actually, the relationship with her mom and her dad later. What did you think? What struck you at that part?
0: Well, well, she kind of goes into that a little bit later. First, she talked about meeting her birth mother, what she wore, what she oh, brought yeah. to meet her, and then kind of got into her adopted parents a little bit later. But it just, I like how she went through, again, you know, listeners, highly recommend getting the book and actually reading yeah. it. I think a lot of you have though, from what I've been seeing I, in comments, but yes. So then she gets into the consider the lilies, which was something her mother, a poem her mother used to talk about, or was that from the Bible? I guess it was the Bible. Her mother was complicated. Very complicated. Sounded like she did not share a lot with her daughter. And and I, I thought or her daughter, I don't know how what the relationship with Megan's sister was like, but I thought I went through the whole chapter reading this and thinking about, you know, her mother was cold kind of. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, Megan said something that made me think, oh, that is, and Megan, if you're listening, you have totally reached out and tell me I'm wrong. But what I got from that was at the very end when she said, oh, I realize now that I'm a parent, how hard it is to be a yeah. parent. And I felt like that was once again, the adoptee <laughs> taking the responsibility. Does that make yeah. sense? What I'm trying I had, to say?
1: I, no, I had the same feeling a little bit that she watched her mom, you know, her mom was such a product of what was going on too. So she had the stress of her dad who she had all the children's stress, right? All the child stress and had to look nice for these things, but wasn't living her true life for her, like a mask. Which I game. think in
0: that era
1: was yeah. super common. That, I think uh, it was super common. And so she never had the, her. she would say to her, what was the one thing her mom would say to her? Be yourself.
0: Just no. be yourself. Just, just be, be yourself. yourself. And yourself, Megan's and you'll be like, fine. I don't know who that is. I don't know who, who I yes. am. How can I be somebody I don't know who that is, you know?
1: Yeah. So, and what you're talking about, I kind of took it as two parts. She, at the very end was like, my mom couldn't be herself because of her role in the society and what was going on in her father, how her father was really needy and all these things that came out to haunt Megan later once her mom passed. Right. Mm-hmm. But then also... You know how you have kids, you think a certain thing, and then when you have your own children, you think, "How did my mom juggle all this?" Right? So I think it was all that, and then also a little bit of the adoptee, like, "Oh, you know,"
0: right, it, right. And I didn't mean it was only that. Yeah,
1: right. But it, I had a, it. I had a was sense all the other it stuff too. too
0: but when, it, it just, yeah. Megan,
1: you have to let us know because I had a little twinge of it too. Like, oh, and you know, I do that. By the way, you know, my mom passed away. I do all that kind of stuff. So. We rewrite our histories and our moments, and Mm
0: -hmm. and we are still full of guilt. You and I talk about this all the time. How are we not? I just feel guilty all the time. Every
1: time we podcast, I feel guilty, and then I don't. (laughs) But I think, no, I don't. I'm an adult. I can make a voice. I have a voice. I want to talk about this issue for other adoptees. You know, other people. The bigger and and it is
0: also has a catharsis it does. for us as well it does but it, it still comes up right Where do you? i relate it. so much to megan though i just yeah. so much she says i feel like i could have i all of my own feelings
1: yeah here's a here's a quote it might be kind of jumping out but i thought of you i've circled sarah louise with big stars she's used to search her mom's room for things Like, and I did this, I was going to ask you before we got on, if you did this, but she used to go when her mom was very particular about her things. So it's not like she could go and just search through her mom's things. She had to like, make sure, put it all back. And I used to go that I used to go into my mom's room and think it was this wonderland, like, oh, the nightgowns and the perfume. And I still picture my mom's perfume, what it smelled like. So she had this, I conducted my inventories in secret, knowing mom would feel it was an invasion of her privacy. I did it perhaps to hew some form of identity for myself. I was adopted, and while it didn't occur to me consciously at that time, looking back, I realized I felt out of place. Or maybe I was trying to find my place within the family via objects. Something always seemed to be missing for me, a piece of myself that I couldn't classify, something within me, but at the same time, unreachable. I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was. I'm not sure I'll ever be able to recognize it. Mm Mm-hmm. I felt like half my childhood was that sort of feeling of trying to find myself
0: in my house. Yes. That's why our homes are so
1: important to us now, I think.
0: The other thing that I really had a, kind of a parallel with her was when she was talking about watching her mom get ready. And mm. my mom sang in a band Well, she was the organist at our church and mm-hmm. in the choir, but then she also had this band and she would sing at the top of the Holiday Inn. Wow. Holiday in or the Ramada in the top of the round, it was called and it was this round, you know, yeah, like cool. Holiday Inn building. And she would sing and I would watch her get dressed up. She'd wear these maxi dresses and she had wiglets and oh she probably makeup. looked amazing. Looks so glamorous <laughs> to me. And so anyway, I had a kind of a flashback when when yeah. I was reading that about Megan's mom. Watching your mom, I could see her looking cute like that, by the way.
1: <laughs> if you're listening, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was a lot of nostalgia maybe yeah. that there's a lot and I think a lot of readers would have a nostalgia with this because just how she describes you know you're at home you know she went through normal stuff that you're not analyzing while you're going through at high school right Never comfortable in your own body I was never comfortable in my
0: body it, and sports kind of helped that but kind of like you know you want to change in that's front of people societal you know what female bodies should look like. And yeah,
1: all
0: um, of it. it is uncomfortable. Hormones are uncomfortable. It is. Well, then there's. Some I, I did yeah. a, a few little highlights that I have. Mm-hmm. My focus as an adopted child was more about trying not to make waves.
1: Uh-huh. But
0: here sense. she put, you know, about her mother not by not sharing her feelings. She didn't allow me to help her through them or to understand them in contrast or in compliment to mine. By taking it all on, I feel it was the beginning of a hot little ball of resentment within her.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of this in here. That's why everybody should be reading along. And one thing that we didn't talk about that was important in her mom's life was that poem. So she had a poem at the back of her closet. wasn't Yes. Back. And the poem had all these things about, you know, who you are if a child isn't talk to nicely, they'll grow up like this, or if you're not supported, you'll grow up like this. I have to look up this poem, but she ended
0: up. I've seen it before. It's just about, yes, it's a famous Mm -hmm. thing about how, if a child lives with sadness, she learns to be sad. If it, you Mm -hmm. know, all that stuff. um, And she used to
1: read it and read it and not know how to apply to her, but it fascinated her and she'd read it and didn't understand the words. And now it's in her home. Like it's one of the things she took with her. And she said, this part kind of resonated with me. The same poem in the same frame now hangs above a dresser in my bedroom. It carries a heavier weight for me. If mom were still alive, I might ask her what the poem meant to her. I might ask her if she felt as I do, the parenting as much of a balancing act as a burden, which is an interesting line. I might ask her if she felt it was hard as I do to take care of yourself when you're trying to launch your children into the world. So I had I had a little bit of like, oh, that part, it made me stop for a minute and reread it. Just the whole, I felt like I was dealing with a lot when I was raising my own child and now my mom's gone and I can't ask her. I mean, there's all these things once your parents die, your adopted parents or your biological parents, that's the end of the questions, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It reminded me of in AM Holmes's book, you know, when she kept the table for the table of her grandmother. Yeah. I mean it, it kind of correlated the two. Well, that was great. It
1: was great. It was excellent. It's always excellent.
0: (laughs) It puts me in a really deep thought, though. We are more than halfway through this book at this point. So I can't believe it. Yes, I can't either. Well, we have a cool guest
1: coming up. I'm excited. We do. Yes, as always. (laughs) As always. Okay, see you soon. See you soon. Bye. Hi, listeners. We just wanted to thank our sponsor, S12F. He's a fellow adoptee dedicated to supporting other adoptees. And of course, we want to thank our Patreons. We couldn't do this weekly podcast without your support. We're so happy to be able to get these important stories out there. Thanks again. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Now back to our guest. So here we are with another episode, and we're excited today to bring you this person, Fred Nikora, and he's coming to us from Milwaukee or outside Milwaukee. Where was it?
2: Actually, I live in Cedar Grove. Oh, Cedar Grove. Okay. Yeah. Rural Wisconsin is the best way to say it. Rural Wisconsin.
1: rural Wisconsin. And he has an adopting memoir out called Forbidden Roots. And we want to highlight that. We'll put that in our show notes. So welcome, Fred.
2: Well, thank you very much. First, I want to say thank you for having me on. I mean, it's, it's truly an honor. And I've listened to a number of your podcasts and you guys just do a stellar job with them. So I'm looking at the repertoire that I'm up against. That you, you've got some very interesting people. And, you know, it's kind of interesting this morning as I was listening to a, a few of them. It just really highlights, you know, there are so many similarities between all of us and we relate to each other at such a deep level. But yet yeah. at the same time, all our stories are different. Yeah. All of them are different. But yet they've all brought us to the same place. That's the part that just fascinates.
0: Me. And they're, but they're all yeah. rooted in the same thing, which is loss.
2: There's a lot of loss. You know it's amazing because when you start listening to some of the stories of who we didn't meet, who passed away before we had a chance to you know connect, it's heartbreaking. you know there's a lot of heartbreak there, but yet at the same time, you, you look at us as a people and just the resiliency, the, the ability to absorb adapt and move on, you know, because that's what the vast majority of of us have done. There's a lot of anger. You know, I've I've seen that across the boards as well. And, and I'm gonna say there's a lot of reason for that. Anger, you know, my story is, it's a bit of a different story. I'm a late discovery adoptee. So I'm, I'm not one who knew from early on, I went through life, I, I grew up in suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Wauwatosa, pretty big high school, I went to 450 kids went there. And actually, interestingly enough, and I'll get a little bit more into it later, but I graduated with a cousin of mine who actually knew I was adopted. So
0: (laughs) An adoptive cousin?
2: Yes. Yes. In my adopted family, a cousin of mine that I had, I went to high school with her and she actually was aware I was adopted. And I grew up with her my whole life. I have a number of cousins, you know, I grew up with them and it's kind of interesting. And I I can touch on reunion and family because, you know, I, I went through that and You know, you you meet all these people and it's kind of funny as a late discovery adoptee, there's a fair amount of, you you feel a sense of betrayal when you do find Mm -hmm.
0: out. I mean,
2: yeah, a lot of your foundation is based on trust of some very simple principles that just aren't true. And so that's loss. And it's kind of interesting as I shake it out over the years and really examine it. The aunts and uncles, I'm not as pissed off at. I'm still kind of pissed off at my cousins. They were my peers, man. That's who I hung with and snuck out with and did things I wasn't supposed to with, you know.
0: Did you have any siblings?
2: No, I didn't. I grew up as an only child. Okay. There was one point, and it was kind of interesting because it was in, in, and I'll get to it, but the adoption records, my parents had come, gone back and thought about bringing another adopted baby into the household, and then they backed off on it. And I, you know, to some extent, I can't help but wonder: did they just not want to cross that bridge with me? How do we explain this new, this new baby that just emerges, you know, without mom being pregnant ever? No, I mean, maybe they just didn't want to cross it. I I have no way of telling because they actually had passed away before I found out. So
0: they died without ever telling you.
2: There's a little story there too. (laughs) (laughs) There's a deathbed story coming up. And I'll, I'll get to that. And it's a story that shows two things. It, it shows the need not to wait. And it also shows the amazing ability of the mind to filter out what it doesn't want to hear at the time. Yeah. So I'll get to that shortly. But well, I guess I can throw it in now. So I found out at the age of 41, at a large family gathering It was a twin uncle's birthday party. Both my parents had passed away already. My second parent, because I was raised an only child, my second parent passing, which was my mother, my father passed away in 93, my mother in 97, both died of cancer. It was awful. I was with both Mm -hmm. of them at the end. And that's a story I'm going to tell you. And this was before I discovered. So, you know, she was the second to go. She died of throat cancer. She had it, she had battled it probably for 25, 30 years, you know, and then finally toward the end, when she was in her seventies, decided... She had had enough. she had lost enough through the battle, and I uh, just wanted to let it take her and so she went through hospice, and at the very end, you know, if you've been with somebody that is at that very end, mm-hmm. uh, they're pretty drugged up at that point, they're not making a lot of sense. they're kind of in and out of lucidity. She started mumbling something, and keep in mind, she had throat cancer. her speech was impacted significantly, and I couldn't understand it. She was saying, "Oh you're up." And I, the only thing yeah. I could think to do was to comfort her mm-hmm. and say, I, I know, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I know, I know, you know, and then shortly after that, she did pass away. But I later, after I discovered, put it together, she was telling me I was adopted. I couldn't, Wow.
0: Understand.
2: it was incomprehensible to me at the time. You know, there were a couple of complicating factors, but, you know, I think that was her come to Jesus moment because she had attempted to die. <laughs> I know that sounds that sounds crazy, but that's, mm-hmm. that's what I mean about all our stories. They're all so crazy. You know, you listen to this. If you've watched somebody go down, you know, there's signs that appear that their skin starts mottling, yeah. function shoot, shut down, their liver function, you know, all the signs. And she went down the hole a couple of times and then always seemed to rebound. And this was going on for, you know, a couple of weeks and nobody could figure out why. And it was after that, after she did her final, I'm going to say confession, yeah. At her bedside, that she finally, I think, could let go, and then she felt her work was done here, you know, and just did let go. So, anyway,
1: and you can put the words sorry. together. You're I was with both my parents when they passed, my adopted parents, and watched both, and a lot of stuff happens then, and you don't understand what are they trying to tell me, and I can imagine are you wouldn't even know that that's the thing she's trying to tell you.
2: No, and you know, and this this stuff's in my book too, just by the way. But one of my biggest regrets, and it's not. I had no control over it. So I don't feel guilty about it. I don't beat myself up over it. But at that time, as she was dying, you know, being a person that wasn't consciously aware that they were adopted, I told her, I said, you know, mom, look, your grandchildren are able to just carry that genetic relay for you forward. <laughs> you know, my kids were playing at her bedside. I didn't mm-hmm. know. What a terrible thing to say to somebody, you know, really.
0: Well, um, yeah, or not. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: It was just kind of an awkward situation, but anyway, another example of why secrets are bad. I guess
1: I'll say, yeah. You know. What happened at that barbecue? Was it a barbecue or a birthday no, party? No, that was
2: that was ninety seven. She uh-huh. she passed away in ninety seven. We were I was living with my wife and my three young children up in Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Saint Paul area. We lived there about ten years. All three of my kids were born there. I had an uncontrollable desire to just get back down to southeastern Wisconsin. You know, I'd say at the conscious level, I was wanting my kids to be around extended family. I grew up around a large extended family on both sides, both my mother and my father. Now they were complicated families. And I don't think we have time for that here. I touch it a little bit in the book, not much. There's a, because I've come to realize it more. There's so much generational trauma that, you know, on both sides that are just piling into these relationships. You know, my father came from a family that got divorced in the thirties. He ended up in an orphanage for a while. He was the one that theoretically drove the decision for me not to know. He didn't want me mm-hmm. to to have to live according to his sister, with the horrors of being an orphan. You know that that was
1: that's where, where he came from. Yeah, that's
2: where. Yeah, that's that, that was, was his, his
0: that was his imprint.
2: Yeah, you know what affected him. My mother was a her father. She had a sister, and then after she was born, she was a second. Her mother died, and her father remarried. So my mother was, I'm going to say, a classic Cinderella stepdaughter.
0: Oh, you know, me too.
2: <laughs> we were just talking about that. <laughs> I am exactly that. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of an interesting, you know, after I put all the pieces together, so then you start looking at these two people coming from this, these dysfunctional, you know, backgrounds of, you know, basically hurt and shame the way it is. And, and then all of a sudden throw them in, in the mix. And honestly, my parents did a great job with me. I love my parents dearly. They They were wonderful to me. They sacrificed for me. I believe I felt love from them. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I I would say the, the one qualify qualifier there is I struggle with the thought of how, how valid is a relationship if you're harboring a secret that big, you know, and, and that even ties into, and I'll talk a little bit about it later, but even my birth mother who I had reunion with and, and she, she was, she went to the grave with the shame. She could not shed that and it impacted so much. And I look at that and, and just think. It's such a tragedy that she had to live from the time she was 22 up till the time she was 70, harboring that shameful secret mm. that she had to keep hidden away in the closet and be afraid of, at every turn, you know, over. I look back, so I'm a classic baby scoop, you know, baby era a baby. I lived in 1959. So in the year 2000, I I had convinced my wife that we were going to move back to the Milwaukee Metro. I had gotten some money through the inheritance from my mother. I bought a a home down here in the immediate area, right by another uncle of mine that I was close to. It was a hard decision to come to. My ex and now ex-wife loved being in the Twin Cities. She hated to leave. I desperately, for some reason, wanted to get back here. And the funny thing is, once I got back, I, I noticed that, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to get back to the area. I'm going to have my kids. All of a sudden we're going to be getting together with cousins and that, you know, and it was like, all of a sudden they, nobody was around, you know, it's like, where did everybody go? You know? And to some extent, I think, well, my mother had passed. She was the reinforcer of the secret, you know, and I think when she passed the rest of the family just kind of felt like it was kind of a mess and they didn't want to deal with it, you know? So to some extent I I was kind of removed from many of them, but The one uncle that I moved close to, he was a twin and he had a a birthday party with his twin uncle. So they were my uncles, Rich and Bob, and it was down at a large restaurant, about 200 to 300 people were there. And while I was at the bar getting beverages for me and my wife my and my three kids, I returned to the table and my wife looked at me and she pointed to a woman and said, is that Alice? And I knew exactly what she meant by that because Alice was known to get everything confused. She was kind of a messed up woman who just didn't, couldn't keep facts straight. And I said, no, that, that's actually Lydia. Why? What'd she say? She's sharp as a tack. And she said, she said, she's known you since the day they adopted you. And I said, what? She said, she's known you since the day they adopted you. I fractured. Yeah. I, my head fell apart.
1: Oh my God. Did you feel that it was true? Like hearing that? That is a tough
2: one to call from the standpoint of at that moment, it all made sense, yet nothing made sense. Yeah. I, I can't
0: even imagine being 41 years old and, and both of your adopted parents dead, and then finding out that you were adopted. That must have just upended your life.
2: Yes, it did. It did, it did upend my life. It took away my foundation. You yeah. know, yeah. house. I suddenly had a a sharp undertow that just swept the foundation. And so then, you know,
0: It's cruel in a way. I mean, it's just, it's cruel.
2: The outcome was cruel, you know, in terms of how I found out and when I found out, probably isn't anything anybody would have designed into their life story. What I would say is at the same time, you know, I can look back at my parents, I can look at you know what their situations were what was driving their behavior at least based on what i'm told because you know i i didn't get to talk to him about it one of my biggest regrets is that we were never able to reprocess that together yeah because mm-hmm. i believe that could have really led to a flourishing and a whole different level of those relationships developing because quite honestly i don't know about the two of you but i can look at the job of being an adoptive parent honestly i don't know if i could do it you know, yeah. it's a tough job. It's a tough. I, I have three of my own that I raised, and I think it's a tougher job than raising your own. You know, I mean, there are so many things you have to be aware of. And I mean, today we're we're much more aware of it, which I'm going to say thank God. I think the adoptions, how the relinquishments are are being held are handled today, is much healthier than it was. You know, in '59, '60. I, so. I,
0: I mean, maybe to some extent, but also I don't know. But that's Different. There's a different set of problems. Let's just put it that way.
2: There are. There are. And you know, I mean, the reality is, there's always going to be
0: issues. I think it's a bigger financial industry now than it than it was then.
2: Well, that's right. I'd, I'd agree with you. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's a big bear to battle, and I don't have a sword that big, quite honestly. Right. No. But what I can say, my goal, my goal, and it's what I'm working toward is. You know, and it's why I speak, why why I'm talking to you. why, And I've been talking on a few podcasts. You know, I put my book out there. I think the more voices we can get telling our stories, the better the likelihood that we will see meaningful change. I mean, it's only, but and we have to get louder. We have to get more voices out there. We have to get more stories. We have to get people to understand that this is not a one and done Oprah situation, that this is happening all over the place.
0: You're not getting... First of all, the whole thing about just wanting a baby as opposed to a child that needs you—two different things. But the babies are not blank slates that yeah. you can just bring into your life and pretend they didn't have an existence before that.
2: Yeah, and trust me, I've gone through my share, and and I did a lot of it with a bottle. Put it that way for many years. I, I ran into a problem <laughs> with alcohol. I, I think it was before we started recording here. I'm, I'm sober thirteen years now. So at this point, you know, I can look at it and and I'd say, see it at, from a different view, becoming sober was essential for me to figure out how to start to heal. And I'm going to say, if anybody's out there grappling with how to start healing, don't think you'll heal first and get sober. Second.
0: Mm-hmm. That's my,
2: that's my take on.
0: It. I agree with you. 100%. First,
2: but you got to do the sober thing first. And you got It's to a good
0: message.
1: It. It's a good message.
2: Cause I think a lot of people, I still, you know, even as I talk on, you know, whether it's group chats or whatever it is you know I'll still catch people you know making references to their drinking and you know going out and you know and it's fine okay you know you you need to know where your boundaries are you need to know what works for you and what doesn't but you know you really want to dive into that healing stuff you know at least for me growing up when I did you know that was that was society's resolve for any kind of an uncomfortable situation yeah get a drink Mm-hmm. Numb it down yeah. man. just numb it down, toughen it up, numb it down. You know, that's what you got to do. So,
0: so, all right. So take us back to the sitting at that table. <sighs> She's known you since you were adopted.
2: Yeah. So I immediately picked out, you know, I gazed at her across the room, you know, this was, you know, there were these large banquet tables and everybody, it's a loud, gregorious. that family is very loud, you know, and they're wonderful people. They really are. They're Polish and German and primarily Polish, some Hungarian in there. So they're they're just what I'm going to call a very gregorious, happy, you know, loud and loud people. So the environment was like that. So I went over to her and I, I just went up, hi, Lydia. And she looked at me and she goes, Oh, Freddie, your children are so beautiful and your wife is so lovely. And I said, Did you tell my wife you've known me since the day I was adopted? And she froze, you know, I, her hands came up, just framed her face, you know, and I was like, Oh my God, you didn't know I shouldn't have. And, you know, the, the most remarkable thing that I can say that happened physically to me at that point was, at that point, I remember noticing I could no longer feel the floor beneath my feet. That the sensation was like I jumped out of a plane. I hadn't pulled the parachute. It's floating. I yeah, I, I wasn't afraid of it because I knew it. I wasn't going to die from it. But it really was uncomfortable. And I carried that feeling for about two and a half months. And it was crazy trying to navigate life where I'm just like, okay, but I don't feel a floor down there. This is crazy, you know?
1: Well, it's like everything's untrue that you knew to be true. And I went through a little bit of this, not with adoption, with another secret that was in my life. And I felt like everything wasn't what it was. It's very upsetting on your brain, like how to process, right?
2: Yeah. I overloaded. I just, I overloaded. Mm -hmm. And I actually spent part of that day and part of the next day, Just, I'm going to say, shaking down anybody I could find. I I drove around to houses trying to catch them on the surprise, thinking that if if they had time, they'd probably try and create a new lie. You know, I mean, I was a little whacked out and I I feel bad for who I all shook down, you know, after that. But at the same time...
0: Did Lydia not give you any more details?
2: She really didn't know much else. And at that point, I didn't even stick around to find out. I just gathered my wife, my kids, and got out of there. I knew I couldn't deal with it there. I the last thing I wanted to do because there was a large side of me that suddenly even though I had always been vulnerable <laughs> the vulnerability suddenly was exposed and and I make an analogy to it I felt like the emperor in the emperor's new clothes I I was the only one that wasn't aware that I wasn't wearing any clothes and I was being paraded naked down the street mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's the crazy part of you know I'm going to say being a late discovery is you end up having at least for me you and i've talked to a couple of others and it's they they found the similar experiences you end up having to reprocess virtually every relationship and every conversation you've had in your life based on the new filter that they were aware of this fact and you didn't know they didn't know you know everybody else knew or you know who you got to figure out who else knew who all knew what did they know how did they find out you know
1: yeah your cousins must have known and then you're not they're not supposed to tell you they honored their parents. Good for them.
2: You know, it's it's crazy. I know. So it's hard to look back at that. And that's why I say the, the poor cousins. I feel bad for the cousins. You know, what were what they going to do? You know, they had their parents on one side and then me on the other. You know, it is what or, it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Have People come forward and talk to you like we're sorry or they want to hear about it or, you know, have. How has that been?
2: I'd say for the most part, you know, keep in mind, this was 20 years ago.
0: Right. I was I just going to say, wasn't this like. The year 2000,
2: mm-hmm. right? 2000, this was in the year 2000. Yeah. So initially when I found out, I would say they pretty much fell into thirds. One third said they they felt bad for me and they were sorry that this happened. But at the same time, they didn't really want to talk about it. <laughs> the second third basically acknowledged that it happened, but really didn't take a stance. And the final third found that I was doing a great dishonor to my parents by deciding (laughs) to look for birth family and we're very vocal about, it. you know, in terms of they do that to them. You know, I was disgracing them. I was a dishonor to, you know, their memory. They, they chose to do this and that was their wish. And how can I just throw away the love they gave me? (laughs) It was like, you don't have a clue. You don't know what you're talking about. No kind of go away, you know? And I'd say over, over the years, you know, and probably the relationships with, those family members has shaken out accordingly. The, the ones that initially were, I'll say, somewhat sympathetic—they some of them have read my book. <laughs> not all of them can quite do that, you know. Some of them, I don't know. There may be one or two that have even listened to a podcast or two. I've yet to have one that'll come to like either a book signing or when I do a, a book reading, you know, at a local bookstore. They're, they're just not quite there yet, you know. They'll allow me to talk about it. In the beginning, it was like if I brought it up, conversations ended, and we just had a kind of.
0: Did anybody know the story of your adoption or where, you know, anything? Did you get any information from anybody or did you just have to go blindly on your own into this?
2: The only clues I got initially from that initial shakedown, yeah, that happened that night was my dad's sister. She was the one that came forward and she said, you know, it was my father that because of his time that he spent in the county home. He didn't want me to experience that horror of being an orphan, you know, and, and we could have, we could go down another dissertation on the implications of that statement alone, you know, Mm -hmm. lies as a filter and how you're raising a kid, you know, it's just kind of crazy. But then she also mentioned, she said, my father mentioned at one point, she, he had put together that my father, my biological father was a professor. That were the only two clues I really had. Now, what I'm going to say is I did do, and I elaborate on it. I, I basically, my own self had kind of a come to God moment, come to Jesus moment. We live really close to Lake Michigan and I, I did beach walks and would walk at night and just the pounding sand, you know, and I'll be the Northern lights were out at that night There were these pools that were just evaporating into these dancing sculptures. It was a crazy night out there. And, you know, after that, that was Sunday night. And I had to go and teach high school because I was a high school teacher, a high school, middle school teacher at the time (laughs) on Monday. And luckily, I had first hour prep. And so I knew that during my first hour prep period, I could call the county courthouse. This is how, you know, I am a guy who, even though I've had at this point in my life at 41, I've had some friends that have been adopted. And so I've casually heard about their stories through them, you know, to some extent, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and I'm adoptees don't quite open up all the way to non-adopted, you know, there's certain boundaries that, you know, I've seen exist there to some extent. And so I walked into this very blind and very naive and very stupid. And what I would say is, whereas, you know, the two of you are known from earliest memory adoptees, this would be the harder, you know you've had a lifetime worth of experiences to help you develop the ego you need to shield you from some of the realities. Mm -hmm. Because Monday morning when I called the county courthouse to say, you know, like, okay, this crazy thing happened at this family gathering. My parents are dead, but they claim I'm adopted. Is this true? You know, I'm still trying to comprehend and process and accept. I'm not even there yet, really. And the only thing they could say at the county courthouse was, your records aren't held at this building. They're <laughs> held at the state of Wisconsin in the Department of Health and Family and Children's Services.
1: Well, Does there's mean- a confirmation. I mean. <laughs>
2: well, I know, but I'm stupid at the time. I don't oh, get it. Oh. And, and, and so I'm like, whoa, why is that? And, and she just <laughs> said, you'll have to call them and, and they'll talk to you about it. You know, and so I called the department and again, I'm stupid. I'm naive. I don't understand my part in the play that I've just been assigned. And so the state had to spend the better part of an hour educating me to the fact that I don't have the same rights as everybody else to my birth information, that those records are not mine to view, that even though they can view them and look at them, I don't have that right. That's written into law that I'm not allowed to see those right now.
1: Can we
2: just say how insane this is? <laughs> yeah, and, and quite honestly, and, and I'm going to say, and, and the reason I tell you it this way is that was almost as big of a blast as finding out I was adopted, finding out that now suddenly in society, I've, I've just been knocked down a run on the ladder, not through anything I did. You know, I mean, yeah, the rest of the population is like this, but for you, you're special. Yeah. And we have to protect other people from you. I've got a restraining order placed on me based on a birth status of mine. This is crazy. You know, I mean, so that was, that was probably as big of a blow to me. And I think a lot of people don't quite understand that, you know, that.
1: Fred, I like what you just said. You have a restraining order placed on you. I've never thought about it in that light.
0: I guess all those of us relinquished at birth all have restraining orders.
1: I've never thought about in that light. To protect the others is to protect everyone else. Yeah.
2: Well, when you look at the adoption laws, they were written, you know, because the mother, and and I'd love to be able to dive into that too. The the mother went through this horrific, shameful process where, you know, she suddenly found because of this biological urge, you know, in most cases, she was part of that urge, you know, and some not, but, and I recognize that, but, For the vast majority, she, you know, she had some part in that urge and suddenly, you know, found out that she's now become one of the most shameful creatures on earth. In Mm -hmm. essence, you know, to some extent, I mean, as I have kind of wrapped my head around it, it's like we witnessed the crime. We are the evidence of the crime. And so, therefore, we must be buried and hid away so that that crime can never be exposed. You know that's the structure that the law is currently written on in closed record states. Yeah, uh-huh. you know you've got to the woman, let her sever her past that this never happened to her, and she can just forget about it in her memory and and move on with life and remove her from you know that shame. So today, what I'm really excited, you know, I I mean this was 20 years ago when I discovered all this and found out exactly who I was, but today it's pretty exciting because I do see a lot more dialogue in it. I love the. The analogy of, you know, trying to move laws from shame and secrecy into truth and transparency. And when you start really boiling it down, you know, I mean, the current laws, all they do is enshrine that shame around that birth mother mm-hmm. you know, for you know, Wisconsin, for instance. So they once the state educated me appropriately and I, I accepted my new role in the play, <laughs> I, <laughs> I had to become somebody else once again. You know, it it was kind of interesting because I looked at it and for the most part, they gave me a path. And the path was I could apply for my non-identification information. If I applied for that and I got it. it's So the redacted file and I read the redacted file. Once I read the redacted file, I didn't know if they were going to quiz me on it or what. But they said, once you've read the redacted file, then you can write a letter to your biological mother. You will turn that over to the state of Wisconsin. We will read it to her (laughs) over the phone. And if she accepts to release your identity, we'll let you know who you are. And if she declines, you have to wait five years and then you can reapply again. You can write her a new letter and see if that one's better. That's and crazy. Then if she declines that one, it's terminal. You don't get to apply again.
1: Twice. you get twice? Twice. Separated
2: by five years.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. Who writes so, this stuff? I mean, like, what is that? It's weird, <laughs> arbitrary laws that... Meanwhile,
1: people die in five years and all sorts of things.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, and it's it's interesting because I, you know, I'll, I'll cut to some of the chase. So I did, actually, I, I was listening to one of your podcasts and I can't remember his name. He was, he was a, a gentleman, just a kind of a terrible story. I mean, he a very happy guy. I know he was like Latino or something because he had a bit of an accent me he referenced. But, you know, as I was thinking through his story, he went through and, and identified the fa- of the wrong father. Oh, um, Jim. Yes. Yeah. Jim, Jim Serrano's story. Jim yes. Serrano. Awesome. What an awesome yes. story. And I actually, I did the same thing, but you know, the state, you send your money in, you know, they, they tell you, they set the expectations. Okay. We'll get back to you in four to six months. Yeah. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm holding my entire house up with no foundation with my hand alone, my arms getting tired. I need to build a foundation, you know, Six months is kind of long to stand here like this, you know. I still also, can't
0: by the it. way, just the fact that we as adoptees have to pay for that. I remember <laughs> yeah. I had to pay <laughs> like two hundred and fifty bucks to my adoption agency to have them start the search. It just crazy. Yeah. Crazy.
1: We've yeah. had guests who stopped looking because they were too broke at the time to pay. You know, they yeah, were young. yeah.
2: So anyway, I, I did, I, I went through a similar process to Jim, you know, where I pinned it on the wrong father. <laughs> uh, I, it, it's interesting because I, I come based on a slip of the tongue of the state worker. And that's, that's the thing, you know, the unofficial definition of bastard, you know, we all talk about bastard. We know what a bastard is. A bastard is a kid born out of wedlock, you know, we're all yeah. bastards.
0: That's
2: yeah. fine. I, I get it. But, you know, you can take it, and then we start assigning personality traits to the word "bastard," and they're never positive traits or anything. Well, look what you put us through! <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm, you make it so I have to call total strangers and, and quiz them in a way that they're not going to hang up on me to figure out if you know they can give me some clue or insight into who I really am. You know, I mean, it's kind of crazy.
1: There's a lot of acquiescing or whatever that how you have Accu- to, yes. have to be, <laughs> yeah. acquiescing. We have to be the certain way you talk and thank you and help me. And, you know, I've had some of that myself and you're like, ah, that's
0: not right.
2: Very much so. So I did actually, it it was kind of, So you wrote the letter? What's that?
0: Did you write the letter to your birth mother?
2: (laughs) I did write it and she did approve, but again, it took, it took a few months and that was in the meantime, I actually, because I was, I was too impatient. I needed to find out. I needed to figure out what was going on. So I actually, because the caseworker, she made a mistake. She said, I was born in Burlington, but actually I was born in Milwaukee, but place of birth was next to mother's residence. So I figured out she was from Burlington. So I then figured out based on the age she told me, which graduating class she was in. So then I actually pinned it down to a graduating class, you know, went to the high school, picked out the pictures, looked at the story based on what I could figure out with the historical society and everything, identified this college professor who had been up at Lawrence University, because remember, my aunt said he was a college professor, actually called one of his daughters, had her convinced that I was her half brother. I mean, we were we were doing <laughs> weekly calls, exchanging family information.
1: You do have <laughs> to get together with Jim, because he had like he had like dinners with his brother. <laughs> I know, I know.
2: So at the end, I had to call her and tell her, you know, I'm I'm not really your half brother. And she was like, That's oh, so sad. I like you so much better than my real brother. <laughs> Oh, that's right. so funny. She finally felt wanted. Wasn't that great, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are
0: you still so friends?
2: I
1: hope you're still friends.
2: <laughs> yeah, I need to reach out to her again. I want to send her a book. I haven't talked to her probably in 15 years. Oh. You know, she, she was, you know, it it's an awkward
0: situation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not your brother. Maybe we could date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: You don't even want to go down that path. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of crazy when you... So I did find my mother. I met with my mother. And I'm going to say, you know, it's interesting. Reunions are dicey, man. And everybody I talk to, some go really, really good. You know, there's a few out there that I've... And notice I said the word few. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's more few and far between that, like, it matches the fairy tale dream that we all have, you know, that this is going to... Be the great coming home, you know. I would say for me, the biggest regret, you know, in reunion was my birth mother carried that shame and she could not let it go. She told me, she said, you know, if you would have come forward even five years earlier, my husband would have been alive. He didn't know, and there was no way he was going to find out. So,
1: I so she she wouldn't have written you back had he been alive.
2: She she would not have allowed me to find out who I was. She would have held that.
0: Was she young when she had you? She was twenty two.
2: Okay. You know, not 16-ish, but 22, you know. And then she, after she had me, she moved out of state, got married, and had three children. I met two of them. One of them died young. My biological mother had a disfiguring condition, a neurofibromatosis. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with what that is, but, you know. I'm not familiar
0: uh, with what that is.
2: It's it's, it, harsh. it's benign skin tumors that pretty much cover you, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you see older people with... A lot of just bumps, just bumps all over, hands, face, everywhere. That's neurofibromatosis. So, and my birth mother had it. It's a disease that it's a 50-50 genetic proposition where either you get it or you don't. It just depends which genes she passed, you know? And so for me, in my case, I did not get it.
1: What about Um, your children?
2: Well, if you get it, you will display. It's not a recessive gene. So if, if I carry the gene, it will show. And it basically starts to show in early puberty and then manifests itself as you go through life. And two of her children had it and two of them do not. And I say that because it can shorten lifespans. And I had a half sister through her that died when she was 20 from a complication of it. And then I had a half brother who I did meet once. I think it was only once I met him. And he had it and he died early. I think he was about 50 when he died from a complication.
1: That's too bad. And are you close to the other brother? Do you keep up with
2: the other sister? Oh, sister. Uh, it's a sister.
1: Well,
2: and that's why I say the reunions get complicated. They're not quite, you know, a fairy tale. So my mother, with her shame, even though her husband had passed away, she still couldn't come to terms with it in relation to her community, the rest of her family, people that didn't know. She she didn't want anybody that didn't know to find out. So that was that was the term that she agreed to you know, because I, in my letter said, I'll agree to whatever terms you want. I was desperate. I didn't, you know, I wasn't in a position to negotiate, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
2: my head wasn't there. And so I agreed. And so she told her daughter and she told her son, her daughter knew before that her son did not. And her son, it took a while for him to come around to the idea. So it it was probably about six months before I met him because he just didn't want to really look at that. He didn't want to deal with it. My biological mother When we would get together, she was fascinated by my kids. You know, I had three kids. She had one other grandchild. Her, neither of her other two children produced. So all of a sudden here I show up and I've got three kids of my own, you know, and so she just became enamored with my kids. Part of the problem. And, you know, I think especially is if you're later in life, you know, and then you pop up at your mother's door, I look a lot like my biological father Mm -hmm. and that, that can bring its own set of baggage. You yeah. know, all of a sudden, here she's looking into the eyes of this guy that.
0: Well, what know, was you know, that? What was their story?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, she was a teacher in the community. So she was teaching fourth grade in the community. He was. And here uh, you
0: were a teacher. A, Interesting, I know. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> well,
2: funny how that all works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's more stories there, too. He was a construction worker. He actually worked. He was working on an addition in a school in her community. And somehow they met, they, from what I I could read in the adoption file, and she confirmed they had dated probably about a year and then she had gotten pregnant. And, you know, her story, when I told him, you know, he said, well, I guess I could marry you, but I don't know that we won't get divorced. So less than romantic, whatever that was, you know, it, it didn't woo her in a way that motivated her to want to stay with him. And he certainly, he offered that I could be, you know, if she wanted to give it up for adoption that i could be given to his family because he had you know and this is where it's quite remarkable you dive into the again generational trauma of the families that you know create these situations and he had come from a situation where his father had actually his mother left his father when he was three and that was from northern missouri she went back to oklahoma and then within 2 years his father died and there was rumors that it was a suicide And so then he ended up, his mother couldn't take care of him in Oklahoma anymore. So she sent him back up to his grandparents up in (laughs) that community where his father theoretically committed suicide. So he grew up there, but he struggled in those relationships. So then he kind of got bounced back and forth between grandparents and aunts of his, you know, dead father. I mean, so you look at it and it's like, well, there's a heartbreaking one all in its own, you know? Yeah. And he had passed away before I found him. Before I even found he was alive. So, mm-hmm. but yet
1: he's the one who said maybe you could stay with his family, which is, you know, mm-hmm.
2: and that that family, you know, I've I've met many, many, many in that family. It's a fascinating family. That the pieces that I put together during those searches of who the families were and where they came from and where they came out of and because they were both very fascinating families from her side. I'm primarily Norwegian from some of the first Norwegian immigrants in Wisconsin. So there's a cemetery that I haven't been down to and I'm, I'm dying to get down there. I just found it not too long ago. It's just South of the Milwaukee Metro three generations of my grandparents are buried there, you know, and it's like, I just, I, I want to go check it out. I mean, man, yeah, yeah. That's like these old Norwegian, you know, Vikings are, they're down there. It's kind of cool, you know? That's
1: very cool.
2: Yeah. And there's actually up in Browning, around Browning, Missouri, Sullivan. That's another town I think that's up there. There's another cemetery. I think that's got four generations of the Brookshires up there, you know, and then both families. And then he was also part, my biological father was part of an Owens, the Owens family out of Oklahoma, who actually... Have two of my grandmother's siblings are in the Grand old Opry Hall of Fame, believe it or not. <laughs> they were country western singers and performers and traveling musicians. And so that's what my grandmother ended up leaving her son, my father, behind for because she wanted a life on the road and she didn't want to raise a kid.
0: She abandoned them. Mm.
2: Yeah, it is what it is.
0: She had, did, you know, did, did he go on to have children? My, oh, okay.
2: Yeah, it it thickens here. So yes, he did. He married once after, and a lot of the book is about me trying to find out about these families and find out about him. I think because he had passed away before I could actually meet him, it may have, I'm going to say, exasperated the desire to try and identify with that side of me. Mm -hmm. So I, I became desperate to find out what I could. And I dug hard. I dug deep. You know, this is back in 2000. So I didn't have as much with the internet a lot of it was telephone books and phone calls and, you know, mailing away for death certificates and trying to put the pieces together. But I did find this one website, it was descendants of Joseph Owens. And it dated actually the families all the way back to the mid 1600s in this country. So arriving like in some of the early ships. So there's a lot of relatives, like I've got a great, great, great grandfather who actually was the one that purchased the farmstead in Northern Missouri when he returned home from the civil war, you know, and it, it's just fascinating to learn some of this stuff. And then there's actually two of his cousins actually fought against each other because Missouri was a split state. at yeah. the time. So one was fighting for the South. One was uh-huh. fighting for them. We have a lot of family that came out of the South. So, you know, half the roots that I've met, are actually out of either Texas. There's an entire grocery store chain down there, Brookshire Brothers, that is out of that family. So it, it's fascinating. And that was what allowed me to actually put my foundation back together, to actually have a piece, put together some puzzle that made sense to me, that you know I fit into, that mm-hmm. I could actually stand on and gave me that feeling of being able to stand on my own two feet. And that took six years. It took a long time to do that.
1: I mean, you've done so much putting it together. But
0: I'd so
1: like did, did you? Did you have siblings through, through him? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so
2: yeah. So after he left, my mother, he went back to Chicago. He married in Chicago. He married a woman who was older than him. Supposedly, she had a fair chunk of money. She bought him a bar to manage in the downtown Chicago Loop. Apparently, he wasn't able to maintain his spirit control very well. So that was a failing business. And he subsequently went to work in some of her other businesses. She was a beautician. She owned beauty parlors around the Chicago area. So he became a beautician, believe it or not, after being a construction worker and then a beautician. So that, which was kind of interesting. (laughs) That is interesting. Yeah. Now, the switch. I'm going to say the guy's less than stellar, you know, and and keep in mind, I'll say, bear in mind, we're talking generational trauma. So give him some space. So anyway, he then divorced his wife, married one of his clients. That marriage didn't last too long. They had two children. He apparently was abusive in many regards. So Mm -hmm. she left him. She took the kids and ran away. She actually left to Ohio without even telling him where she was going with the kids. And then he lived out the rest of his days from what I could tell in Ohio. He eventually became a cab driver and he died at the age of 60 in the lobby of the Hilton at the uh, O'Hare airport. And that that story I eventually got out of his half-brother, who had most of his his last belongings. And there's another story there I do want to tell you. So there were the two half-brothers, and I did meet those two half-brothers. One is, I'm going to say, six years younger than me, that's John. And then the other is, I think, two years younger than him. So eight years younger than me. So as far as I knew from him, I had two other brothers, and that was it. And then on my mother's side, I had the brother and two sisters. What was interesting is, you know, I went through my period of recovery and then kind of reemerged, emotionally got to a place where I decided I needed to get my book out there because I felt strong enough to tell my story and Mm -hmm. do it in a public manner and felt I a drive and need to do that. And as I'm getting ready to do the final sign off, this was 10 months ago, I'm, I'm going through my emails and all of a sudden something pops up through because I did do my verifications of who my genetic family is. Believe it or not, as late discovery, you end up with trust issues. You don't really trust people too easily. So I needed verification. So I did tie, you know, based on who I met, where they were, you know, in the databases, I figured it out. I learned how to use those databases to figure out who people are in your family. And all of a sudden, this woman shot me an email from Ancestry. She said, we're first cousins, and I don't know who you are. And I'm really curious because my father was adopted, but he never searched for family." So I started doing the checking and I started pulling her in, comparing her to my other relatives that I had already confirmed, and figured it out. Her father was my half-brother. My biological father had another child that Uh was given up for adoption seven months before I was born.
0: Two of you seven months before you were born?
1: Seven
2: months before I was born. Ah. He was active.
1: Yes, he was. I was gonna say he's getting around. He was using what I'd call
2: an alternate family planning model.
0: Wow. So where is this half brother now? Yeah.
2: Unfortunately, he died at the age of 50.
0: Oh, a lot of that. Mm -hmm.
2: I know. Now what gets really interesting, and here's where I'm going to, and I'm thinking about, I want to do an article on it because I think it's a powerful story. But so you start putting the pieces together. My biological father died of a massive heart issue in the lobby of the Hilton at the age of 60. My half brother died at the age of fifty from a massive heart issue. He had bad health habits, smoked Mm -hmm. and drank. So did my biological father, and in my past, so have I. All of a sudden, I started doing, looking at these pieces, following the trail of breadcrumbs, realizing my blood pressure is already through the roof. Guess what? I've cleaned up my act.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're you're stopping the cycle. I'm
2: trying to.
1: We want you around for a long time, so keep that going. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, no. So are you just to final sort of few wrap-up questions? A, you stayed in touch with your birth mother until she died. Absolutely. So yeah.
2: here's here's where it gets at. You know, even we reconnected. She struggled with me a little bit. We had some good heartfelt conversations, but anytime we'd meet in a restaurant, I was to come in with my family in the back door. We were to sit down somewhere. <laughs> she would come in through the front door and find us. She didn't want anybody to put it together that, you know, that we were related. When she died, she gave her daughter strict instructions. Do not tell him I've died. She didn't want me at the funeral. She was afraid people would figure it out.
1: Okay. That's just sad. That makes me so sad. It
2: is what it is. It is. But just that she
1: has to feel that deep of shame, you know?
2: And that's why I say, you know, I I look at the laws we have in place today, and that's where Mm -hmm. My energy is getting focused. We look at the laws and what do those laws do? Yeah, they hurt us adoptees. We're not allowed to figure out who we are. And for me, that was an essential building block of putting together a whole new foundation. And not only did it affect me, it affected my wife, who eventually I divorced from. It affected mm-hmm. my kids. It affect, you know, it affected so many people. And when you look at the structure of the laws themselves, I mean, just the way that you have to, you're totally guarding the shameful side of this secret. That's what the whole structure of the law is based around.
0: Well, and it's also based on protecting the adoptive parents. They are the first priority in these archaic laws.
2: Well, and and what I'm going to say is the real cost Then, you know, I think I would say it costs the adoptive parents as well, too, because they lose the opportunity to have that meaningful relationship with their adoptive child, because that relationship, I believe, can be something a whole lot more special than probably what it was.
1: Yeah. Really open and beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Get to know each other, get to
2: really, 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 really grow mm-hmm. to, to grow into it, to embrace it.
1: You know? I have one Do question it. before we end that I don't know that I know a little from what you wrote us, but did you ever feel as a young person different than your family? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, you, did it make sense later? Like, oh. ah, yeah. yeah. So,
2: okay. I'm, If you do my DNA and you look at me, it all kind of, it makes sense. As a kid, I was blonde. I was tall. I was thick. I was blue eyed with red highlights. I looked Norwegian and Scottish (laughs) and English. And that's what I am. Mm -hmm. I look, I, I am that. And I looked like that. My parents were both Eastern European, basically from Romania and Poland. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at, think about who's the most renowned character out of Romania Dracula. So it was kind of like Thor trying to play Dracula. It just <laughs> didn't work. You know, it just didn't work. You know, I know those are cartoon characters and it's kind of making light of the situation, but there's physical cues that I just missed. You know, I was leaps and bounds taller than both of them, you know. They were dark, I was light. I was blonde, they were brown. <laughs> there was there was nothing that really made sense, but Again, that's kind of to me an example of how your mind protects you. You know, it holds those secrets for you until mm-hmm. you can deal with them and process them. So,
0: yeah. Wow. Well, this has been really quite the conversation. Really, <laughs> it really has. Enjoyed having you, and I feel like we could just go on and on all day. But
2: can I? Can I give have- you one short closing story? Or- yes. yes.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: So, and and I'm not going to kill too much of the book here because the book goes so far beyond it. But so long, long, long story short, a lot of the book is trying to find Uncle Ron. Ron is Don's brother. Don is my father. And Ron is the one that signed his death certificate. So I thought if anybody could give me clues, tell me, are there any other siblings know anything else about who this person was that I was, you know, born out of, not born from, but he, he had his hand in it. It would be Ron. Eventually I found Ron and it, it was a long, hard path to find Ron full of family dysfunction and sisters <laughs> that weren't talking to brothers. And until that could break, then I could maybe get in over here and, you know, get a conversation. So finally I found Ron. It turned out Ron not only had Don's final belongings, he had Don. He had the oh. ashes of Don. Don was sitting in a, a storage unit down outside (laughs) of San Antonio, Texas for the last 20 years. So I offered, because what I had found about Don is, is I knew Don was, he he loved Wisconsin. He loved getting up and escaping in Wisconsin. It was one of the things I found uh, actually talking to one of his old bosses. And so I.
1: And you were drawn to that too. So there you go again.
2: Yep. And so I went down and I got the final belongings of Don Brookshire, my father, and I was uh, bringing them home. And before I opened the box, this was back when I was drinking, Ron and I got quite honestly shit-faced together. (laughs) And we came back and I knew I was too drunk and emotional to go through the box of Don's belongings at the time. So I decided I'd wait till the morning before everybody, I'm an early riser. I got up early in the morning, started opening the box and I knew Don was an avid bowler. All of a sudden, here's his bowling bag says Don Brookshire on the tag on the bowling bag. I open up the bowling bag, pull out the bowling ball. Okay. I have to set a context. My mother never told my father whether I was a boy or a girl. My first birth name was Stephen Walter. It wasn't Fred. I look at the bowling ball. Guess what the name on the bowling ball is? Stephen. Fred.
0: Wow. Fred. That's weird.
2: Let that soak in for a
1: while.
0: <sighs> Crazy. There's so many bizarre coincidences with adoptees and stories like this. It's really Did you spread his ashes or do you have his ashes? Or what happened?
1: I'll send you a copy of the book.
0: Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, listeners, we'll put a link for this. So make sure you get it. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been a really enlightening, incredible conversation. Thank you for telling us.
2: Yeah, you guys are great. I want you to keep up your great work. I really am enjoying listening to your podcast. You guys do an awesome
1: job. at Thank
2: you. You have a very good style, and I appreciate your work. It's it's much needed work, and it helps.
0: Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks, Fred. We'll talk Fred. to you soon. Stay in touch. Right.
2: Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.
0: That was a really interesting, incredible story. Those late discovery adoptees, what a way to just, you know, I like the way he described you yeah. about the suddenly it was like he was floating, like he had jumped out of a plane and the parachute hit before the parachute was pulled. I mean, I can't, I was sitting there listening to him and kind of thinking about how that would feel.
1: How would it feel? It'd just be beyond like your whole life would be like, wait, what? All these people knew something about me? Yes. And there are a lot of late discovery adoptees. And so Mm -hmm. we love to hear more of those stories if anybody is listening. I also liked you know, how he said, the thing about having our birth records that we're actually, I have a restraining order. Yes. It's just there's something about that that hit home to me. Just kind of like, everyone's got to be protected from this loose cannon adopting. Right.
0: The, this baby. you know. <laughs> I, I feel mean, some
1: of that sometimes, you know, when you talk about or bring it up, people are like, oh, why do you have to go there?
0: Yeah. I also thought what he said about how it's hard to open up. To other people who aren't adopted. Like, and I, I really understand that. Me you too. Know, in a way.
1: When uh, you and I met and we were playing pool, everybody, we were playing pool and we really hung out the first time. <laughs> we right away were like, oh, we could say some things you just don't say casually to other people. Uh-huh. Quickly. You're like trusted compared to something else.
0: Exactly. Like cl- we know how we navigate life differently. And you don't realize that until you start talking to adoptees, but we do, we navigate life differently. There's just no getting around that.
1: That's why the community is good for everybody to get involved in and, Mm -hmm. you know, and just have a, you know, try to have an adoptee community. There's a lot of resources. We'll put some, we're going to start putting some in our show notes. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. So, Well, well, this has been another
0: great episode. Another great episode. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today.
1: And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at The Making of Me Podcast.
0: And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon The Making of Me. Bye. See you next time.